All right. Good to see you out this evening. I didn't know what we would have, but I knew I could count on you to be here and looking forward to being able to be in the Word together this evening and rejoice in everything our good God has done. Uh, so thank you for being here. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, the last chapter of the book. And uh, you're going to want to make sure you don't blink very much because I'm only going to take two sermons on 1 Corinthians 16. So, um, you know, when you come to an end of a book like this, you come to uh, sometimes a lot of what will feel like uh, uh, things that are mixed together, a lot of greetings and so on. But I have found over the years that the end of some of these epistles can be very profitable for our understanding of the Word, our understanding of our Christian life, and our relationship to the Lord. And um, I think 1 Corinthians 16 will definitely prove to be that. Uh, In particular, I think that one of the things that really struck out to me, having never preached on this passage before, is um, all of the relations that Paul is concerned with in Uh, the Corinthian church. So he's concerned that people would be properly related to each other in the body at Corinth. And and so he spends a lot of time uh, working on this. And so in this text, we will get a feel for Paul's desires for believers to unite together in harmonious relationships in the church. We have to remember that he's dealing with a divisive church, one that uh, seemed to almost enjoy getting in line behind one of the apostles rallying behind a human personality, dividing up into groups, and claiming allegiance to just one person. This church, at least some of them, delighted in sowing discord in the body. And so it seems that some Christians in Corinth delighted in dividing up. And I found in my short uh, term in Christian ministry over the years, uh, I think I went into ministry, you know, do you ever go into ministry? We were always ministers of the gospel, but from the time I finished Bible college and became a, a pastor, um, you know, in the 20 years or so, I find that there are some Christians that seem to really be invigorated by a fight. It's almost as if they're disappointed if there isn't a fight, you know, and if there isn't one on the outside or externally, they look for fights inside uh, the church. Uh, perhaps, uh, they are like uh, a, a friend of mine, a young friend of mine is, is in ministry as a pastor, and he's part of a church plant effort. And uh, he has noticed a trend in his church plant, and that is any time there's any issue that could possibly be disruptive in the assembly, the business meeting attendance doubles or triples, which I think is a sad testimony to the church that he's working with. Okay, because, you know, if it's just like, if we're just talking about like budgets and strategies for like, you know, great commission, well, then you guys can handle that. But if there's, if there's going to be some fireworks, I don't want to miss that. I think uh, there are some, some Christians who delight in spending time on, online looking for Christians that they have never met before so that they might separate from them. I understand as a pastor, one of my responsibilities is to, to be one of the shepherds here, Colonial Baptist Church, to shepherd the flock. And I know from time to time, I'll have to do a little bit of research on different groups or different teachers who are influencing the church, and I might even occasionally have to say something about that. I have done that from the pulpit here. But to be honest with you, it's not a joy of mine. I don't like just like looking around online to find you know, garbage on some Christian that I can bring up and bring to your, your attention. I think... 
For Christians who have this sort of divisive attitude, that will run counter to this text. Where Paul is concerned that the Corinthians relate properly to other churches in Christ, to himself, to Timothy, and to Apollos. So I don't think Paul really cares what group they are. He's just really concerned that they relate properly to these other people. And so in verses 1 through 11 in chapter 16, Paul uses discussions about a gift and about travel plans to emphasize the value of properly relating to others in the body of Christ. There's some information about a gift here. There's some information about different people traveling different ways. But underneath it, I see Paul is concerned that the Corinthian church would properly relate to other believers in Christ. And so as we work through the text, we start with uh, verses 1 through 4, where Paul begins to discuss the gift, a gift that he's generating for the churches of Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. As we start into this text, it may seem like an abrupt transition from a discussion of resurrections, chapter 15, to a discussion of collections or gifts, but we're well trained in 1 Corinthians now, right? We know that at the beginning of this section, there is a structural marker that that lets us know that Paul is now transitioning to another question the Corinthians had asked Paul. We've seen this four times in the letter already, and it seems as if the Corinthians had asked Paul a question about a, a, a love offering or gift that he was generating for the poor in the churches of Jerusalem. Now, the transition might not be as abrupt as we think because there are some thematic connections between the end of chapter five, 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, one of which I noticed is the phrase, the work of the Lord. Remember, at the end of chapter 15, Paul says we're to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Do you remember that sermon this morning in that text? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. It seems to me that in chapter 16, Paul's showing them a few ways they are or can be abounding in the work of the Lord. They can be abounding in the work of the Lord by being willing to give their financial resources to noble causes that will promote unity in the body of Christ. And they can be abounding in the work of the Lord by encouraging apostles as they would come uh, alongside them. Look at verse 10. Paul says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing, and let me just translate this way, he is doing the work of the Lord. He is doing the work of the Lord. So you have this thematic connection to chapter 15, always be abounding in the work of the Lord, and, and you know what? You should support Timothy and encourage him because he's always, or he's doing the work of the Lord. And so this transition, I think, is just really showing us how we can be doing, some of the ways we can be doing the Lord's work. We can be encouraging apostles like Timothy. We can be giving financially to gifts that are for noble causes, like Paul's talking about here. Now, looking in verses 1 through 4, just to give you a little background here, I think that Paul is specifically trying to get money uh, for a, a gift that could be sent to the poor people in the Jerusalem church. 
You look in verse 3, for instance, and when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So this monetary gift is going to Jerusalem, and and in verse 1, he talks about generating a gift for the saints. Seems to me that Paul is concerned about a group of Jewish believers in the churches of Jerusalem who are struggling financially. Now, for just a second this evening, I invite you to go back to Galatians 2 so you can see a little bit of why Paul has this concern. Go back to Galatians 2 in your text. Uh, We won't be going all over the New Testament tonight, Uh, but this text, I do want you to see. Galatians chapter 2, it's very important to understand uh, actually several significant texts in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. Let me just read down through this text. You can follow along. I'm going to read 10 verses. Paul's talking about his early ministry here and uh, just before he would really engage people with the gospel. He's done a little bit of this, but he's getting ready to go out on some of his missionary journeys. But before that, he goes up to Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed to be influential. The gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order that they, uh, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, I love this parenthesis, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, or Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only, look at this, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is taking place in Jerusalem, and, and you know, so these pillars, these people seem to be influential in the church. The early apostles, they put a stamp of approval on Paul's ministry. They bless his apostolic ministry. They proclaim that he's preaching the gospel correctly. They say there's just one thing we really want you to do when you go out there uh, other than preaching this clear gospel, and that is we want you to remember the poor. I think that there's something going on in the churches of Jerusalem. You could go to Acts chapter 6, and you could see that one of the things that may have been going on is that the churches of Jerusalem were being flooded with widows who were coming from all these Greek cities because of of a famine that was going on in the world. And so there were some widows who could not care for themselves, and so they're coming back, they're moving back to Jerusalem church, and now Jerusalem church has to create deacons to be able to care for these these widows who are being neglected in the daily ministration. Remember that text, Acts 6? I think it's also possible and and perhaps true that the churches of Jerusalem were suffering from a famine. And so as Paul and the the, the pillars discuss his gospel, they say, please just remember 
the poor in the cities of Jerusalem. And how does Paul respond to that in Galatians 2 and verse 10? He says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. I go back to 1 Corinthians uh, for a moment. Paul was eager to help with this exact thing. While we don't have the time to go to some other text in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and Romans 15, I think Paul was eager to help the poor in Jerusalem for a few reasons. He was eager to help them you know, or to give to them so that it would alleviate the financial pressure and strain that the poor people in Jerusalem were facing, poor believers in the churches. But he was also eager to do this because it would be tangible evidence of the goodwill of, the Gentile, of Gentile believers toward Jewish believers in Jerusalem. In other words, this is not just a gift for charity to poor people, but it's poor Jewish believers. And Paul believes that this will also promote unity in the body of Jesus Christ. And so through all throughout his third missionary journey, he goes through Macedonia and he goes throughout Greece and he's, he's generating this gift for the poor people in Jerusalem. Okay, so that's the background of the text here. Now, as we go back to 1 Corinthians, Paul's project for the Jerusalem church was quite simple. I mean, he has a simple plan here. Okay, in verses 3 and 4, you can see it very clearly. He says, on the first day of every week, they were to set aside something for this project. Okay, now, I just want to look at that a little bit more closely this evening. Uh, He first talks about the timing of this project. He says that they were to set these things aside or store up these things on the first day of every week. Now, we don't really know exactly why Paul says it this way and why he identifies every Sunday as the day to do this. I mean, he could have, you know, he could have said it other ways. If he just wanted them to do this regularly or weekly, he could have said, you know, just set aside every week. However, I think, especially in light of all this discussion in chapter 15, uh, Paul is telling them to do this primarily as a response to the significance of the work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that really changes everything for the early church in Christianity. Jewish people had the significance of, you know, especially honoring a Sabbath on a Saturday, but now for the Christian church, everything's changed. Because one day, Jesus rose again from the dead, and he did that on a Sunday. And so now Sunday becomes a special day of worship for the church. And Paul says here that perhaps it even should affect the way we give. The way we give. And so as we're looking at the timing of this project, the day, the first day of the week, week, I think, was lifted up because this was a day of the week upon which Christ arose. And his resurrection changes everything for Christians, even weekly reckoning, even the way we weekly reckon our personal finances and contributions to the needs of the church. I want you to notice as well the procedures for the project. He says, now on every first day of the week, I want you to put aside something and store it up. Now, we don't really know exactly what this means either. 
it may mean that every Sunday they were to take up a collection and people were to give and someone in the church or the church was to store it up. Or perhaps it's better, I think what Paul's actually doing here, although it is controversial, I think what he's saying is, you know what, every week you need to be disciplined and regular in setting some of your own money aside and store it up for when I get there so that we don't have to go through a series of collections or collections when I come. I think one of the things we have to remember about the early church is, you know, they didn't have a bank to put their money in, okay? And so if there's like this collection, this money's just growing, I think it could be a potential issue. So Paul says this is, a, this is his plan. It's quite simple. Every week, set aside, you know, be strategic in your savings so that the gifts are ready when the time comes. One of the things I was struck in this text, verses three and four, this plan is so simple. Forgiving. No large giving campaigns. No sales pitch. No pledges. Just regular, faithful, setting aside for this noble project. I want to make just a few applications for us this evening uh, along these lines. I, I think it would be wise for us all as members of the Christian church, to value uh, or to learn the value of purposeful and consistent giving. Paul expects believers here to give because of their new identity in Jesus who rose again for them on the first day of the week. And I think a good healthy application for us is we should be regularly reckoning our finances and contributing on a faithful basis on account of Christ's sacrifice for us. One of the motivations for why we give faithfully and consistently to the church on the first day of the week is because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. It's a form of worship. And so I think we can learn this faithful, regular pattern of giving to the needs of the church. Uh, but I think we should also see the value uh, in projects like this one who, that are to give to promote unity in the greater body of Christ. It's at this point in the narrative or the text here that I think Paul begins to start his emphasis on the fact that he desired for there to be harmonious relationships in the church that cross from Gentile to Jew. And this sort of giving project gave him an opportunity to promote good relations between Jewish and Gentile believers. Now, in another effort to secure harmonious relationships in the church, Paul spends some time talking about travel plans in verses 5 through 11. I can go quickly through this with you. Look in your Bible at verse 5. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. Um, actually, I misquoted it in my notes. Let me read it from the Bible. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for <coughs> a wide door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. 
Let's make a few statements here about this text and just kind of go quickly through it. There's a lot you could say. First, Paul talks about his own travel plans. He says that he plans to come to them, and when he does come to them, Paul's in Ephesus, he's going to pass by way of land, he's going to come by way of land to them through the cities of Macedonia, perhaps revisiting some of the churches that he had planted in places like uh, Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. But after he's done in those cities, he's not going to stay very long. He says, I, I want to come down to you in Corinth. I'd like to, to stay the winter with you. Um, now, until that time or before he leaves, he's going to stay in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. He says, until when? See that in the text? Just making sure you're still awake. Until when? Until Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival that would occur in the spring. And so Paul says he's going to stay in Ephesus until the spring, and then he gives us the reason why he's going to stay in Ephesus. You see that in your text? The reason he's going to stay in Ephesus is because a great door of opportunity has been opened to him, okay? Now, I kind of gave this away a little bit in chapter 15 when Paul, when Paul talks about his time in Ephesus, when he described this great door in a different way. He says, uh, why would I fight with wild beasts in Ephesus? if there's no resurrection of the dead. Chapter 15, Paul describes this great wide open door as a time where he would be persecuted, that he's being persecuted greatly and severely. Now in this text, he, he uh, definitely alludes to that as well. He says, a great door is open to me and there are many what? Many adversaries. I think many modern Christians, if faced with many adversaries for the gospel, would not see this as an open door, but a closed door, right? That's the way we interpret things like this. I mean, a lot of persecution going on, you better get out of there. But Paul says, no, this is a great door, a wide door opened up for the gospel in Ephesus, and he doesn't want to leave. One of the things uh, that we learn here in this portion of the text is Paul understood something that perhaps we don't understand very well, and that is sometimes persecution brings great opportunities for Christ and the gospel. In fact, one, one author wrote it this way, and I thought it was really good. His name is Mark Taylor. He wrote in the New American Commentary. He said this. He said, great opposition presents great opportunities for the proclamation of the gospel. Great opposition produces great opportunities for the proclamation of the gospel. Yet sometimes we are very quick, quick to dodge and avoid persecution, even if, it may, remains, if, if it means remaining silent regarding the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. I was reading this week, and I don't have a, a lot of time to get into this illustration, but I was reading this week on uh, a feature article on... Uh, a website called Ethnos360. That's the new name for New Tribes Ministry, Mission. And they're featuring uh, a young missionary by the name of Toking. He was one of the first converts on his island uh, in Papua New Guinea. He was trained by the missionaries there and became an elder in his church. And just this last September, so King was greatly persecuted for his faith in Christ and mistreated in horrible ways so that the end result was he and his family were, were driven out of their home and forbidden to ever, they were forbidden to ever set foot in their home village again. 
So as we consider our own approach to persecution and trial, I think some of us would have a pity party. We'd be self-pitying our, you know, ourselves. But to, to King took this as a sign from God to move to the neighboring village and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men and women, we need to learn the tenacity that Paul's describing here. Okay, there's a great door of opportunity for me in the gospel, and there are many adversaries. Now, as he continues here, he gets, uh, uh, after discussing his own travel plans, he talks about Timothy in verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 10 again. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. So we get to this discussion of Timothy. I'm just going to kind of lay out there my personal idea or view on Timothy and what Paul's saying about him here. You notice Paul gives the churches of Corinth three commands regarding Timothy. They say, put him at ease, which could be translated, give him no reason to be afraid. Then he says, when, when, when Timothy comes to you, Timothy's already on his way to Corinth from Ephesus, when, he's, when he comes to you, help him on his way. That's the second command. So put him at ease. Don't let him be fearful. Church, give him no reason to be afraid of you. Help him on his way, which I think means, you know, contribute to helping him come back to where Paul is. And then there's this other command that you see in the text. He says, uh, there, and let no one despise him. You see that in your Bible? Now, my personal opinion about that command is that Paul is especially concerned that people would treat Timothy correctly because Timothy's younger. And he's an ally of the Apostle Paul in ministry. As a matter of fact, several years after this, it would be probably seven or eight years after this, Paul's going to write the pastoral epistles. And in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, what's he going to say to Timothy? Timothy, let no man despise your what? Youth. But be an example of the believer. I think what Paul's going after here is he's going after, uh, and he's establishing for this church that they would not despise Timothy because of his youth. You know, it's easy for a church sometimes to despise some ministers of the gospel because they're just too young. They're just too young. May I say this, Colonial, let this never be true of us. Let it not be true of us. If someone is called an ordained minister of the gospel, we need to be very careful to respect, honor, encourage, and yes, even Submit to them as a pastor as long as they follow the Lord and the word of God, right? And so I, 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 I trust that would never be true of, of us. I mean, Paul in this text has no tolerance for a divisive church who would take advantage of a young minister of the gospel or bully him to get their own way. And so he tells the church, let no... Let no one despise him as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he gives them the reason why they shouldn't despise him at the end of verse 10. You see that? The reason that Paul gives this command, this demand, is because Timothy is doing the work of the Lord. You see that in your Bible? For he is doing the Lord's work. Put him at ease. Don't let him be afraid because he's doing God's work. 
This is a way for Paul to basically say this. You know, if, you, if you're going to stand in opposition to young Timothy and his ministry, and you're going to sit in judgment over him, you need to understand that you're in opposition to the Lord. Again, this doesn't mean we don't evaluate or we don't critique, or it doesn't mean that there is nothing a young preacher can learn from elderly wisdom. Okay? And there are times, I think, when we'll pull someone aside, just quietly, you know, teach them the word of God. Or help them along, but if this is an ordained ministry of the gospel, if we call them to be our pastors, we need to respect them. We need to even be willing to submit to them, regardless of their age. And so, here, Paul's concerned, again, I think, that the Corinthian believers would relate properly to others in the body of Christ, whether that would be the poor churches, the poor believers in Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul himself, or young Timothy. And that leads him to answer one more question in verse 12, and that is about Apollos. Look in your Bibles at verse 12. Paul says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you, or to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So I just point out, uh, this is technically a new section. It's one verse long. This is the sixth question that Paul answers, I think, that he gets from the church. The churches at Corinth uh, had a specific question about Apollos, and it seems as if at least some of the Corinthians wanted Apollos to come back to them, wanted Apollos to visit. And this text could reveal some sort of little tension or rift between Paul and Apollos. This depends on how you take it. So the Apostle Paul responds to the Corinthians' question about, you know, can Apollos come back now? We'd like Apollos to come back now. Paul says, I challenged him to come back uh, to you, but it was not at all the will for him to do so right now. He will come when he has opportunity. So the questions about verse 12 is when he says the will, he, you don't know if it's God's will or Apollos' will. I tend to think it's Apollos' will. Paul says, you know, because of my concern for you as a church, I know that you had questions. You would love Apollos to come back. So I went and I talked to Apollos, and I would like for him to come back to you, but it was not his will. It was not his desire to come back to you. He'll come back whenever he wants. And that's all we get about this. I think all throughout the book, though, Paul has been dealing with the groups in Corinth that were dividing up following different apostles. Remember in uh, chapter 1, Paul says there are some of you who are saying, I'm of Paul, I have Apollos. I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. Seems like there are you know, maybe at least four groups in the church are dividing up. But then it's very interesting to me that in chapter 3, Paul continues the conversation only about two of them. Who are the two that he continues describing in chapter 3? You can, you can look in your Bible. Anyone remember? Who does he continue to talk about in chapter 3? Paul and Apollos. It may be that there was some sort of minor rift between Paul and Apollos, that perhaps some enjoyed Apollos because of his powerful preaching. Perhaps Apollos' theology is just a hair different than the Apostle Paul. I, I see traces of that in Acts 18 and 19, maybe even having a little different idea about the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which, you know, Paul follows Apollos in Ephesus, Acts 19, and he cleans up some of Apollos' mistakes when it comes to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to get too far into speculation, but this could be, 
you know, one of the reasons why a church like this would have so many different ideas about spiritual gifts, because Apollos spent a long time in Corinth just like Paul did. However, regardless of whether or not there's any particular uh, opposition here, Paul had a concern for the greater church in the church at Corinth. So he encouraged Apollos to visit Corinth to fulfill his ministry to them. Again, Paul is concerned that the church relate properly to other people, including another apostle. As we close, one of the the things I think we can do with all this mention of Jerusalem churches and Timothy and Paul's travel plans and Apollos' travel plans is to respond by this, by asking, are you concerned for the harmony of the body of Christ? We must not only treat others with trust, grace, and respect in the church. We must purposely and intentionally cultivate harmony with others across the church of God. One of the reasons I, you know, there are two main reasons I really uh, decided to come to Colonial Baptist Church, and they're the two things we emphasize again and again. We are a text church. I love that. Through the scripture, verse by verse, right? And I don't want to mess that up. If I mess that up, you come talk to me. Say, young preacher, you've got something to learn here. (laughs) I'll take it. We're a text church. But I also love the fact that we are a grace church. We are a grace church. What does that mean? That means, I think, in, in places like this, we give others the benefit of the doubt in the body of Christ unless they disobey the scripture. And if they disobey the scripture, we go and we talk to them about it privately, kindly. And we demonstrate from the scripture how they're disobeying the scripture. But we understand that there are differences of, of opinion in the body of Christ. And, if, and, and, and Paul's point here, I believe, is you know, there should be this sort of grace philosophy in churches that's looking for harmony in the body. And our relationships to others in this assembly and and even the ministers of the gospel in this assembly are very important if we're going to please the Lord. Let me close us in a word of prayer. I invite you to stand at this time. We won't close with a song. I'll close us this way as we pray. It's been a good time to be in the Lord's house. There's a a lot, uh, of course, that we have learned today, but perhaps Paul's desire for harmony across the body of the church is a good way for us to reflect Uh, this evening. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity, the privilege that we have to gather together tonight. To me, it's been thrilling to be able to work through this text, to to consider all this, uh, this passage and what Paul was doing, to see his great love for the churches of Corinth. Lord, we know that even in 2 Corinthians, he continues this. He wants them to be reconciled to him as an apostle as well wasn't content for disharmony and disunity and divisiveness in the church, but he's imploring them to to treat others in the proper way. Whether that's a young minister of the gospel or perhaps who did not have much experience, Paul says, uh, put his mind at ease, help him on his way, and let no one despise him. Lord, whether that was the churches in Jerusalem who were different, uh, different Ethnically, Paul wants them to 
to, to, to be willing to sacrifice and give up their resources, to strategize week by week on the first day of the week so that they can give a gift to the, the churches of Jerusalem, perhaps help the unity in the body across ethnicities. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to apply even these verses of Scripture. If there's someone in our assembly who is angry, disturbed by the actions of another believer, Lord, I pray that they would either talk to them in grace from the Scripture or decide to treat them with harmony and love as fellow members of the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you for our time together tonight. We pray, Lord, as Pastor Paul mentioned earlier, that you would give us grace to be able to leave this place and take advantage of the opportunities that we have, perhaps even this evening, to interact with fellow members in the body, to encourage them, to point them to Christ, and or, Lord, would you give us the power and the ability to, uh, to take advantage of relationships even this evening with the lost, to point them to Christ, to give them the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for all of this. We pray that you would, you would keep us, that you would guide us, and that we would serve you faithfully until your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're dismissed.